Please turn in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. We're in verse 1. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, uh, verse 1. Let's pray together. Father, we come before you and we ask that you would give us ears to hear. That we would have open hearts to your message. That where we need conviction, that you would provide it. Where we need correction, that we would be open to it. As this section of scripture is challenging us to learn, we want to have teachable hearts. So would you pour out your Holy Spirit upon our time together in Jesus' name, amen. Examples are powerful in life. When we think about someone where we're watching and observing their life and looking at their example, it's been said, and I believe that it's true, that more things are caught than taught. We really learn by watching someone's example, good or bad. As we do celebrate Father's Day, I think of my own father and his godly example that he has given to me in my life. His love for the Lord, his commitment to worship, his commitment to study the word of God and and to prayer, his heart for, for worship. I think of his commitment to my mom and their years of marriage and they're getting closer to celebrating 50 years in marriage and faithfulness in his marriage. I think of him as a father and how he's invested in his kids and he's invested in his grandkids. I think of his legacy of enduring pain. He's had many health problems and many health challenges and he's endured those and continues to endure those as a champ. And I'm thankful for that godly example that's been provided in my life. What we're going to look at today is actually a bad example in 1 Corinthians. We're shown by what not to do, by what not to do. Paul takes us back to the Old Testament, to the children of Israel as they're in the wilderness. They're traveling through the wilderness and they walk away from God. They get into idolatry. They get into sexual immorality. And we're able to learn from their bad example as we study the scriptures together. So join me in verse 1. Moreover, brethren, I do not want you to be unaware that all of our fathers were under the cloud. All passed through the sea. All were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. All ate the same spiritual food. And all drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank of the spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was Christ. So Paul takes us back. As they're traveling through the wilderness, they're going through the Red Sea, passing through the Red Sea. God parted the Red Sea. They daily had this cloud that would lead them. They would be led by the shade of the cloud. They'd be under the cloud. God would provide manna from heaven as their physical provision or as a rock that would follow them, Scripture tells us. And this rock, Moses on two occasions cried out to God and God brought forth water from the rock. So this was an incredible experience of God's provision. It was an incredible experience of of God's faithfulness. One thing that's clearly seen here is Christ in the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, we have pictures of Christ. In the New Testament, we have the principles of Christ. And pictures are worth a thousand words. And as we see this, the Red Sea points to baptism. The baptism that we have in Christ. The word baptism means immerse. 
As you're baptized, you're immersed in the water. The reason that you're immersed in the water is because you've already been immersed in Christ. The picture in the Old Testament is we have the Egyptians holding Israel as slaves. God sets them free from their bondage. And what caused Pharaoh to be drowned, to be destroyed, to ultimately come out of the bondage of Pharaoh was the Red Sea. God parts the Red Sea. They go into the Red Sea. They're immersed in the the Red Sea. Pharaoh's heart is hard and he goes in after them. And God brings in, he collapses the Red Sea upon Pharaoh. They get to the other side and they're free. Freedom, free from bondage. And they begin to worship the Lord. And in Christ, through the death, burial, resurrection of Christ, the blood of Jesus, our old man, our Pharaoh, our taskmaster, which we're enslaved to, is buried and we're risen in newness of life. So it's a picture of Christ. We see the spiritual food being a picture of Christ. As God would give manna from heaven, that daily bread, that daily provision, Jesus says, I am the bread of life. He is the one who satisfies our soul. He is the one who meets us on a daily basis. The rock, says very clearly, was Christ. The rock is points to Jesus because Jesus is the chief cornerstone of our foundation. He is the unchanging one. He is the source of the living water. Out of the rock comes the living water that satisfies our soul. As you study the scriptures, I hope that you see Christ in the pages of the Old Testament. All of scripture is pointing to Christ. Jesus is the central message of the scriptures. What's emphasized here in these first four verses is that they all had the same spiritual experience. Even though that it was physical food and physical water that was given to them, God says it's spiritual drink and it's spiritual food. When God meets our physical needs, it is spiritual. It is to cause us to trust his provision. It's to cause us to rely upon his faithfulness. You would think that this incredible experience of God delivering them from bondage, providing for them supernaturally bread from heaven, providing for them water from the rock, this cloud by day and this pillar of fire by night would result in faith and obedience. But it was the exact opposite. Look at verse five. But with most of them, God was not well pleased For their bodies were scattered in the wilderness, most of them. There was the few of faith, and we know that to be of Joshua and Caleb. They're the only two that didn't die in the wilderness because they saw the challenges and the giants through the lens of faith. The rest of this generation died in the wilderness because of unbelief. How tragic. They never entered into the promised land. They never entered into what God had for them. They were still God's children, but they wandered in in unbelief. And that's the bad example that we're to learn from. God's children, but we can easily not experience the peace that God intends for us. We cannot experience the joy that he has for us. And through unbelief, we can wander in the wilderness Simply going in circles and circles and and circles. And maybe that's how you feel this weekend. You're like, man, I just keep going in circles. I 
I feel that I'm dying here in the wilderness. Before we pick on this generation too much, is we should look at our own hearts and look at our own lives. We've experienced more than this generation in the wilderness. And you're saying, how so? How, how is it that I have experienced more? I haven't eaten bread from heaven. I haven't seen water come from a rock. I didn't experience the Red Sea being dried. We have experienced salvation. We experienced the regeneration of the Holy Spirit. The temple of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit resides inside of us. We are enjoying what they longed for. We are living in the new covenant. In this new covenant, with the reality of who Jesus is in our lives, is it resulting in faith? Is it resulting in trust? The ironic thing is that we can trust God with our salvation as believers. We trust that he's going to take us to heaven, but we struggle with the day-to-day challenges of life that God is going to be faithful. So if we can trust God for our salvation, let's also trust him for the situations that we're going through in our lives. So let's see where this generation in the wilderness went wrong. Verse 6, now, These things become our examples to the intent that we should not lust after evil things as they also lusted. Taking notes, lesson number one is lust. Lust got the best of them. They started to lust after evil things. Numbers chapter 11 records this for us. I read it to you. It says, Now the mixed multitude who are among them yielded to intense craving. So the children of Israel also wept again and said, Who will give us meat to eat? We remember the fish which we ate freely in Egypt, the cucumbers, the melons, the leeks, the onions, and the garlic. But now our whole being is dried up. There is nothing at all except this manna before our eyes. (laughs) It says that they craved intense craving. Don't remember Egypt accurately. Oh, it was so good back in Egypt. No, they were slaves. They were tortured in Egypt, but it was good back in Egypt. And when lust gets the best of us, we look back at our life before Christ and we go, oh, that's when I had it good. We're not remembering things accurately. What is lust? Lust is longing for what God has not provided. Longing for what God has not provided in our lives. Psalms 106 talks about this lustful condition that they were in. They soon forgot his works. They did not wait for his counsel, but lusted exceedingly in the wilderness and tested God in the desert. And he gave them their request, but sent leanness into their soul. Did you notice the progression there? They forgot his works. They forgot what God had done for them, how God was faithful to provide for them. In the midst of that forgetfulness, then they didn't seek God. They didn't seek his counsel. They didn't seek his direction. Then they're turned to unbridled lust. And the scary thing about Psalms 106 is then that God gave them their request. He sent them over to the leanness of their soul. There's a point in our relationship with God is him being our father, the ultimate father. He says, really, you want this? You want this? I'll let you have it. And we get our request. We get 
our lust, we get what we craved for, but in turn, we have leanness of soul. We traded in abundance of soul for leanness of soul. What's the answer to lust? How do we overcome lust in our lives? It's the presence of Jesus. Jesus said, I will never leave you or I will never forsake you. Therefore, let your lifestyle, your conduct be without covetousness, without lust. We oftentimes look at something and say, if I only had that, then I would be happy. That's a lie. If the grass is greener on the other side, the truth of it is, is you have what you need You have what your soul is longing for, and that's Jesus. And in relationship with him, in resting upon his promises, that's where our soul is satisfied. This generation and the children of Israel in the wilderness, they got off track because of lust. Verse 7, And do not become idolaters, as were some of them, as it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. Lesson number two, idolatry. Exodus chapter 32, write it down. Moses goes up to seek the Lord. As the leader is gone, as Moses is gone, the children of Israel turn to gross idolatry. They take the possessions that had been provided by God as they were delivered out of slavery. The Egyptians loaded them up with jewelry, with gold, with the bling bling as they left Egypt. They take this gold and they melt it down, tell Aaron, we want you to make us a golden calf. And Aaron's willing. And it's this crazy scene in the Old Testament where they attribute God's deliverance in their lives to this stupid, stinking golden calf. The golden calf. What is idolatry? Idolatry is when we put something in the place that only God should be. Only God should have that credit. Only God should have that worship. But instead, they're giving their worship to the golden calf. So when we fall into idolatry, remember, this is all written for us to learn from their bad example. Is we want to guard our hearts against idolatry. We want to guard our hearts of putting anything in the place where God should be. What plagued the children of Israel throughout the Old Testament It was idolatry. They constantly turned away from God and turned to these false gods of the nations that have surrounded them. In 1 John's epistle, he writes this beautiful letter of God's love. What does it mean to know, to live in God's love? And he leaves us with this warning. He says, my dear little children, keep yourselves from idols. Idolatry is always there. It's always knocking on the door of our hearts and our lives to rob us of worship, to rob us of God being in the proper place in our lives. So first lesson is with lust. Second lesson is with idolatry. And then the third lesson is with sexual immorality. Nor let us commit sexual immorality as some of them did. And in one day, 23,000 fell. Numbers chapter 25. Numbers chapter 25. It's an interesting section in the book of Numbers. Moab wants to destroy the children of Israel. The leader of the Moabites goes to Balaam. He says, Balaam, would you go and bring a curse upon Israel? God intervened, 
And when Balaam would start to curse the children of Israel, God turned it into a blessing. Balaam realized that he was not going to be able to curse the children of Israel. But he did give Moab this advice, saying the way to destroy the children of Israel is to send your women in. And they will enter into sexual sin with the women that you send in, and they will turn from the one true living God. That's exactly what happened in Numbers chapter 25. The children of Israel start to sin sexually with the women of Moab. God sends a plague, and with that plague, 23,000 people died. Could it be that what is plaguing the church today is sexual sin? Could it be that the enemy and his attack of Christ's bride said, this is the way I'm going to get the church. This is the way that I'm going to bring destruction into the church is through sexual immorality. I was studying and working in a coffee shop this morning, and as you know, conversations in coffee shops aren't private. And in the table sitting next to me, I couldn't help but overhear two men talking and talking about sex. And this man who was talking about sex, he was talking about God and Jesus and church and everything about what he was saying indicated that he was a believer. But then he was talking about how old-fashioned it is that the church teaches that you're not supposed to have sex before marriage. And he felt that it was much better to have sex before marriage to see if you're sexually compatible than to get into a marriage and find that you're not sexual, sexually compatible. I don't know of an area where the church is being more attacked to adopt the thinking of the world and ultimately the perversion of, of the devil. So whenever we look at sexual immorality, we first have to talk about what God's design for sex is. God's design is sex should be expressed inside of the commitment of marriage between a man and a wife, male and female. Anything outside of that is sexual immorality. Pornography is sexual immorality. So God's heart for us as his children is that we would live in sexual integrity. That we would not go down any of these roads of lust and idolatry and sexual sin. And as we'll see in a few moments, there's a way out of of sexual sin. There's a way out of sexual temptation. I believe that there's some, as you're listening, you find yourself in the midst of sexual sin. You find yourself looking at pornography. You find yourself in a sexual relationship that you're not supposed to be in. You examine your heart and you go, man, I've got sexual sin in my heart. These thoughts are going unchecked and I'm sinning and committing adultery in my heart. Good news. As we repent and we're broken before God, God forgives and he restores and gives us victory over sin. But please do not accept the world standard for sexuality. Please do not allow Satan to lie to you in this area. God wants us, he desires for us 
to live holy unto him through his power and through his might. And it can be done through the reality of Jesus in your life. And I would urge you today, right now, to repent of sexual immorality. See the destruction that it brings. See the fact that God killed 23,000 people in, in one day. And the destruction, the absolute destruction that's coming. I think if you're honest with yourself and you're honest with God, is you know, you know that that sexual sin is destroying you. And with sexual sin, there is shame and there's great guilt. And God doesn't want you to live in that shame, but to be pricked by the Holy Spirit to repent from sin. So what this may mean is it may mean you're not living together with your boyfriend or girlfriend anymore outside of marriage. That it's time to get married. It's time to enter into that covenant of of marriage. It may mean married people that you're flirting with a relationship that you know is outside of your commitment from marriage. It's time to delete that number. It's time to block that. Some may be finding themselves in this absolute duplicity where your spouse thinks you're being faithful, but you know that you're being unfaithful, and it's time to cut off that relationship. It's time for the internet to not be a private world, but to be open and to be public, to get accountability partners and load the software, open yourself to accountability to where it's no longer a private world. Take action. But it all begins in the heart, the heart that says, man, God does not want me living in sexual immorality. I find the order of this to be interesting because it was idolatry before sexual immorality. Worship got misplaced in their lives before they entered into sexual sin. And sexual sin is a result of misplaced worship. If we're in sexual sin, we really have a worship problem. We've got our eyes off of the Lord. If we look at our lives and go, man, I have drifted from that place of intimacy with the Lord, so now it's easier over here to engage in sexual sin. Get your eyes off the sin. Get your eyes on the Lord. Get worship at being the priority of our hearts and our lives. Verse 9, nor let us tempt Christ, as some of them also tempted and were destroyed by serpents. Nor complain, as some of them also complained, and were destroyed by the destroyer. Numbers chapter 21 says they tempted Christ. They tempted God by their complaining. Our complaining offends God. If you ever give a gift to someone or provide for someone, and they respond with complaining of what you've given to them, it offends you, it hurts your heart, it And here, it's an offense to God. And this is lesson number four. To learn from this generation to not enter into complaining. To not enter into complaining. Notice what it says at the end of verse nine. It says, destroyed by the destroyer. Just like sexual sin allows Satan to come and bring destruction in our lives, complaining does the same thing. Complaining allows the destroyer to wreak havoc upon our lives. Nothing good happens in my relationship with God when I'm in the place of complaining, grumbling and complaining. The way this is recorded in the Old Testament is that they would murmur. As they're in the wilderness, murmur, murmur, grumble, grumble, complain, complain. 
Don't get me wrong, wilderness times, wilderness experiences test the soul. And it's easy in the midst of that to go down that road of complaining. And God, how could you? And and where are you? And why am I suffering while that person over there is getting blessed? I, I tried to serve you and now this is what has resulted in our lives. The scripture talks about the sacrifice of praise. Choosing praise choosing to reflect on the goodness of God, the fruit of our lips to say, I'm choosing to be thankful to the Lord. The joy of the Lord is is my strength. As we read Numbers 21, we see that they begin to be killed by the Lord because of their complaining. Moses cries out to God. God says, I want you to put up a bronze serpent on a pole. How strange, a bronze per- serpent on a pole. Then the instruction to the children of Israel was, look at this serpent and you'll be healed. Jesus then in John's gospel said that he is the serpent lifted up in the wilderness. As the serpent was lifted up, so he would be lifted up. How is Jesus like a snake? Because he who knew no sin became sin for us. He took the punishment for our sin so that we could be the righteousness of God. And as we look to Jesus in faith, we're saved. What's the answer to deliver our souls from complaining? It's beholding Jesus Christ and him crucified. It's realizing his suffering and all that he went through in order to to win our souls unto himself. Verse 10. Now all these things happened to them as examples, and they were written for our abnomition, upon whom the ends of the ages have come. My pastor, growing up, would always say it this way, experience is the best teacher, but why does it have to be your experience? Do we have to go down the road of lust? Do we have to go down the road of sexual morality? Do we have to travel in idolatry? Do we have to be someone who's consumed with complaining? Or can we take seriously the message of scripture and go, Lord, I am learning from this bad example. I I am learning from what happened to the children of Israel in the wilderness, and I'm turning to you with my worship. I'm not allowing my soul to be consumed with lust. I don't want to put something else in place of you. What a gross mistake to put a golden calf in place of the Lord. I'm not going to go down this road of sexual immorality. I'm not going to enter into complaining. I'm going to learn from their example. I I see the destruction that resulted in their lives. What's most tragic about this generation is that they get to the promised land. Twelve spies are sent in. Ten come back with a report of unbelief. Two, Joshua and Caleb, come back with a report of faith. And the multitude believes the testimony of the ten. And they weren't able to go into the promised land. They died in the wilderness. We're going to miss out on what God has for us. Miss out on our relationship with him if we allow ourselves to get consumed with what consumed the children of Israel. Verse 12, therefore let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. There's a warning here. Take heed. Take heed if you think you stand 
lest you fall. There's a temptation, and it's the temptation of pride where we think, I've got this. I've got this under control. Have you ever said this or thought this? I would never do that. (laughs) Be careful. Be careful. Those were the words of Peter. Peter looked at the other disciples and said, even if these turn away from you, I will die with you. Peter was fully committed in his own heart. I think in his mind, he didn't even think it was possible that he would deny the Lord. But he ended up doing the thing that he never thought that he would do. And Jesus says, before the rooster crows three times, before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. So, in humility and reality, we don't ever want to believe or speak these words, I would never do that. Or how could they do that? Because all of us, in our sin, in our flesh, we have the capacity for all kinds of sin. Right in here dwells the capacity for all types of sin. God wants us to walk with him in humility. To walk with him in humility is to understand who he is and understand who we're not. Okay, I'm sinful, I'm weak. God, you're awesome and gracious and and beautiful and and kind. So I'm going to walk with you in humility. If you think you stand, take heed lest you fall. The Proverbs put it this way. Pride comes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. What is so dangerous about pride is it is the center of lots of other sins. It's the root of a lot of other sins. Because our pride blinds us and we go, oh, I've got this. I'm not going to commit adultery. I'm not an angry person. And we're not seeing ourselves accurately before the Lord. A great promise is given to us in verse 13. Lay hold of this. No temptation has overtaken you except such as common demand. Sometimes we think we're very unique in our temptation to sin. Remember, it's the committing of sin that's wrong, not temptation. But we think, man, I'm the only one who is being tempted in this way. And God says, no, your temptation is common to man. Be encouraged. Everyone around you is being tempted. You are not the first one to struggle with this particular temptation. Whether it's a sexual temptation or it's drugs or alcohol or bitterness, anger, you name it, it's not unique to us. But sometimes we almost play the victim card, don't we? And we look at our sin and our temptation and we go, man, I'm the only one who has ever struggled in this way. No temptation has overtaken you except such is common to man. But God is faithful, underline that, God is faithful who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will also make the way of escape that you may be able to bear it. God is going to provide a way of escape from the temptation. God's means of deliverance from temptation is the first exit. What do I mean? In Colorado Springs here, we have many exits off of I-25. Let's say you're coming into Colorado Springs 
from the north, from Denver. You could take the first exit. I believe it's InterQuest Parkway. It might be Northgate now. But where the city limits begin, there's the sign that says you're entering into the Olympic City, to Colorado Springs. And you get off on the, the first exit. I remember where I grew up in Grants Pass, Oregon, this small town on the I-5 freeway. There was two exits to get into Grants Pass. And our home was really close to, to the first exit as you were driving north. And as we're on this highway of temptation, the way of escape that God has provided in his faithfulness is always the first exit. Is always the first exit. So you're online and you're being tempted to look at pornography. The way out is right away to respond to the prompting of the Holy Spirit and get offline. Get off of the internet. Call your accountability partners. If you're married, reach out to your spouse and say, would you pray with me? The way out of temptation is not flirting with temptation. When we're being tempted to sin in our anger and anger's getting the best of us, the way out is to take the first exit and to begin to focus on the Lord and to focus on scripture and cry out to Jesus for his help and his strength. God has provided the way out. God has provided the escape. It's up to us to choose to take the way of escape, to take that that way out. Specifically, the way out of temptation is Jesus. Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So he is the way. When we're in the midst of temptation to cry out to Jesus, Hebrews 4 tells us that Jesus was tempted in all ways like us, but yet without sin. So we have a faithful and merciful high priest that we can go to in time of need, to find grace and help. So Jesus understands temptation. In his humanity, he understands what it means to be tempted, yet he never sinned. So we're able in our temptation to go, Jesus, I know that you know. I know that you understand what it's like to be tempted. So would you please help me right now? I need your power, I need your strength, I need your grace and your help in time of need. And he will be faithful to lead you out of that temptation. Sometimes we don't really want out of the temptation. We've already decided in our hearts and our minds that we're going to enter into that sin. Remember, what's it cost? What does sin cost us? Sin costs us in our closeness in our relationship with God. Sin costs us with those that we love the most. Sin brings destruction. Walking with the Lord leads to the abundant life. Do you ever regret following God's ways? They're not easy. But in the long run of our lives, definitely in eternity, we never regret walking with the Lord. If you find yourself in the midst of temptation right now, choose to take the way of escape. A few reflection questions for us. The first is this. Is the reality of Christ in my life resulting in faith? That's one of the challenges from this generation. They ate manna from heaven six days a week. They drank water from the rock. 
They walked through the Red Sea on dry ground. They enjoyed the shade of the cloud, the pillar of fire by night. Probably no other generation experienced the more supernatural working of God in their midst. If there were ever a group of people that you think would have faith and trust in the Lord, obedience to him, it would be this generation. Maybe you think, I just need more signs from God. I need God to do this and this and this in the physical world, then I'll know that God is faithful. I suggest to us, if the resurrection of Christ is not enough for us to trust him, nothing ever will be. So, For us, are we like the children of Israel where we're experiencing the reality of Christ, we're enjoying his forgiveness, the regeneration of the spirit, Christ dwelling in us, but it's not resulting in faith. It's not resulting in us trusting him. And I do understand this is a challenge. This does not always come easy. But for us to choose faith, what is it that's testing your faith? Is there something that's going on, a specific trial a specific difficulty to be able to say, Lord, I am choosing faith. Let me remind you and remind myself that we get to choose to believe. We get to choose to trust. It's not just left up to our emotions. If you allow your emotions, if I allow my emotions to steer our ship, we're going to get off course. We're going to be shipwrecked, but we can choose faith. We can choose faith. Next question. Will I be instructed by these bad examples? Will I be instructed by these bad examples? In the Old Testament, we find a king who rebelled against God, and sometimes then his son, who is his predecessor, would do the exact opposite of his dad and choose to walk in God's ways, to follow the example of of David. That king learned from his dad's bad example, from his bad example. Will we be instructed by the bad example of the children of Israel? Will we allow that to teach our our hearts? Maybe you also have a, a tangible bad example in your life where they have walked away from the Lord and you've seen the damage, you've seen the destruction. And yes, God wants to bring redemption, but you have personally been able to get up close to that bad example, will we be instructed by it? Will we learn from it? Will we choose to go down a different course? And then finally, and I, am I taking the way of escape? Am I taking the way of escape? In temptation, am I taking the way of escape that God has provided? God is faithful. He will provide the way of escape. But will we take that way of escape? It's never too late even if there's been a pattern of sin in our lives in a particular area to say, I am going to take that way of escape. The context of what we've read in 1 Corinthians 10 goes back to Paul saying, I'm choosing discipline in my life, the end of 1 Corinthians chapter 9, because I want to run the race for the prize that is incorruptible. I don't want to be disqualified when I share the gospel. Then he goes into this paragraph of the importance of not walking in lust, not walking in idolatry, 
not walking in sexual immorality, not walking in complaining. God has so much more for us. So Father, we thank you for this bad example in Scripture. And we learn from other people's experience. We take a moment in your presence to just examine our own hearts. Would you search us? Would you know us? Would you reveal to us where we're at in worship? If you really have our affection and our passion, if you're the most important thing in our lives, would you reveal where there's lust in our hearts, where we're longing for things you haven't provided, where there's that intense craving for things that you haven't provided. Lord, forgive us. The golden calves, the idolatry, where we've adopted the priorities of the world. We've put something in your place. Would you knock our idols down? Sexual immorality. Lord, search us, know us. May we not be in a place where We think we stand lest we fall. If you find yourself in sexual immorality, choose right now to repent. Respond to the loving voice of God. He wants to restore you. He wants to pour out forgiveness in your heart and your life, but you've got to let go and turn from that sexual sin. So much better that the Lord has. God, would you protect us from sexual sin? We need your help. We need your strength. We're not strong enough in and of ourselves. God, where grumbling and complaining has got the best of us, it's an easy time to grumble and complain. As in many ways, we're walking through a wilderness experience and we choose right now to thank you. Thank you for being our dad, our Abba Father. Thank you for heaven. Thank you that you are our peace. You're our peace. Thank you for your presence. We choose to rejoice in you. So Lord, would you take your word and now bring fruit in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen.